Section 35 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Youth 3, Part 4. After Christophe's quarrel with the Vogels, it became impossible for them to stay in the house, and Louisa had to seek another lodging for herself and her son. One day Christophe's younger brother, Ernest, of whom they had not heard for a long time, suddenly turned up. He was out of work, having been dismissed in turn from all the situations he had procured. His purse was empty and his health ruined, and so he had thought it would be as well to re-establish himself in his mother's house. Ernest was not on bad terms with either of his brothers. They thought very little of him, and he knew it. But he did not bear any grudge against them, for he did not care. They had no ill feeling against him. It was not worth the trouble. Everything they said to him slipped off his back without leaving a mark. He just smiled with his sly eyes, tried to look contrite, thought of something else, agreed, thanked them, and in the end always managed to extort money from one or other of them. In spite of himself, Christophe was fond of the pleasant mortal who, like himself, and more than himself, resembled their father Melchior in feature. Tall and strong like Christophe, he had regular features, a frank expression, a straight nose, a laughing mouth, fine teeth, and endearing manners. Whenever Christophe saw him, he was disarmed and could not deliver half the reproaches that he had prepared. In his heart he had a sort of motherly indulgence for the handsome boy who was of his blood, and physically at all events did him credit. He did not believe him to be bad, and Ernest was not a fool. Without culture he was not without brains. He was even not incapable of taking an interest in the things of the mind. He enjoyed listening to music and without understanding his brother's compositions, he would listen to them with interest. Christophe, who did not receive too much sympathy from his family, had been glad to see him at some of his concerts. But Ernest's chief talent was the knowledge that he possessed of the character of his two brothers, and his skill in making use of his knowledge. It was no use Christophe knowing Ernest's egoism and indifference. It was no use his seeing that Ernest never thought of his mother, or himself, except when he had need of them. He was always taken in by his affectionate ways, and very rarely did he refuse him anything. He much preferred him to his other brother, Rodolphe, who was orderly and correct, assiduous in his business, strictly moral, never asked for money, and never gave any either, visited his mother regularly every Sunday, stayed an hour, and only talked about himself boasting about himself, his firm, and everything that concerned him, never asking about the others, and taking no interest in them, and going away when the hour was up, quite satisfied with having done his duty. Christophe could not bear him. He always arranged to be out when Rodolphe came. Rodolphe was jealous of him. He despised artists, and Christophe's success really hurt him, though he did not fail to turn his small fame to account in the commercial circles in which he moved, but he never said a word about it, either to his mother or to Christophe. He pretended to ignore it. 
On the other hand, he never ignored the least of the unpleasant things that happened to Christophe. Christophe despised such pettiness, and pretended not to notice it, but it would really have hurt him to know, though he never thought about it, that much of the unpleasant information that Rodolphe had about him came from Ernest. The young rascal fed the differences between Christophe and Rodolphe. No doubt he recognized Christophe's superiority, and perhaps even sympathized a little ironically with his candor. But he took good care to turn it to account, and while he despised Rodolphe's ill-feeling, he exploited it shamefully. He flattered his vanity and jealousy, accepted his rebukes deferentially, and kept him primed with the scandalous gossip of the town, especially with everything concerning Christophe, of which he was always marvelously informed. So he attained his ends, and Rodolphe, in spite of his avarice, allowed Ernest to despoil him, just as Christophe did. So Ernest made use and a mock of them both, impartially, and so both of them loved him. In spite of his tricks, Ernest was in a pitiful condition when he turned up at his mother's house. He had come from Munich, where he had found, and, as usual, almost immediately lost a situation. He had had to travel the best part of the way on foot, through storms of rain, sleeping God knows where. He was covered with mud, ragged, looking like a beggar, and coughing miserably. Louisa was upset, and Christophe ran to him in alarm when they saw him come in. Ernest, whose tears flowed easily, did not fail to make use of the effect he had produced, and there was a general reconciliation. All three wept in each other's arms. Christophe gave up his room. They warmed to the bed and laid the invalid in it, who seemed to be on the point of death. Louisa and Christophe sat by his bedside and took it in turns to watch by him. They called in a doctor, procured medicines, made a good fire in the room, and gave him special food. Then they had to clothe him from head to foot, linen, shoes, clothes, everything new. Ernest left himself in their hands. Louisa and Christophe sweated to squeeze the money from their expenditure. They were very straitened at the moment. The removal, the new lodgings, which were dearer though just as uncomfortable, fewer lessons for Christophe and more expenses. They could just make both ends meet. They managed somehow. No doubt Christophe could have applied to Rodolphe, who was more in a position to help Ernest, but he would not. He made it a point of honor to help his brother alone. He thought himself obliged to do so as the eldest, and because he was Christophe. Hot with shame he had to accept to declare his willingness to accept an offer which he had indignantly rejected a fortnight before, a proposal from an agent of an unknown wealthy amateur who wanted to buy a musical composition for publication under his own name. Louisa took work out mending linen. They hid their sacrifice from each other. They lied about the money they brought home. When Ernest was convalescent and sitting huddled up by the fire, he confessed one day between his fits of coughing that he had a few debts. They were paid. No one reproached him. That would not have been kind to an invalid and a prodigal son who had repented and returned home. For Ernest seemed to have been changed by adversity and sickness. With tears in his eyes he spoke of his past misdeeds, and Louisa kissed him and told him to think no more of them. He was fond he had always been able to get round his mother by his demonstrations of affection. Christophe had once been a little jealous of him. 
Now he thought it natural that the youngest and the weakest son should be the most loved. In spite of the small difference in their ages, he regarded him almost as a son rather than as a brother. Ernest showed great respect for him. Sometimes he would allude to the burdens that Christophe was taking upon himself and to his sacrifice of money. But Christophe would not let him go on, and Ernest would content himself with showing his gratitude in his eyes humbly and affectionately. He would argue with the advice that Christophe gave him, and he would seem disposed to change his way of living and to work seriously as soon as he was well again. He recovered, but had a long convalescence. The doctor declared that his health, which he had abused, needed to be fostered. So he stayed on in his mother's house, sharing Christophe's bed, eating heartily the bread that his brother earned, and the little dainty dishes that Louisa prepared for him. He never spoke of going. Louisa and Christophe never mentioned it either. They were too happy to have found again the son and the brother they loved. Little by little, in the long evenings that he spent with Ernest, Christophe began to talk intimately to him. He needed to confide in somebody. Ernest was clever. He had a quick mind and understood, or seemed to understand, on a hint only. There was pleasure in talking to him, and yet Christophe dared not tell him about what lay nearest to his heart, his love. He was kept back by a sort of modesty. Ernest, who knew all about it, never let it appear that he knew. One day, when Ernest was quite well again, he went in the sunny afternoon and lounged along the Rhine. As he passed a noisy inn a little way out of the town, where there were drinking and dancing on Sundays, he saw Christophe sitting with Ada and Mira, who were making a great noise. Christophe saw him, too, and blushed. Ernest was discreet and passed on without acknowledging him. Christophe was much embarrassed by the encounter. It made him more keenly conscious of the company in which he was. It hurt him that his brother should have seen him then, not only because it made him lose the right of judging Ernest's conduct, but because he had a very lofty, very naive, and rather archaic notion of his duties as an elder brother, which would have seemed absurd to many people. He thought that in failing in that duty, as he was doing, he was lowered in his own eyes. In the evening when they were together in their room, he waited for Ernest to allude to what had happened, but Ernest prudently said nothing and waited also. Then, while they were undressing, Christophe decided to speak about his love. He was so ill at ease that he dared not look at Ernest, and in his shyness he assumed a gruff way of speaking. Ernest did not help him out. He was silent and did not look at him, though he watched him all the same, and he missed none of the humor of Christophe's awkwardness and clumsy words. Christophe hardly dared pronounce Ada's name, and the portrait that he drew of her would have done just as well for any woman who was loved. But he spoke of his love. Little by little he was carried away by the flood of tenderness that filled his heart. He said how good it was to love, how wretched he had been before he had found that light in the darkness, and that life was nothing without a dear, deep-seated love. His brother listened gravely. He replied tactfully and asked no questions. But a warm handshake showed that he was of Christophe's way of thinking. 
They exchanged ideas concerning love and life. Christophe was happy at being so well understood. They exchanged a brotherly embrace before they went to sleep. Christophe grew accustomed to confiding his love to Ernest, though always shyly and reservedly. Ernest's discretion reassured him. He let him know his uneasiness about Ada, but he never blamed her. He blamed himself, and with tears in his eyes he would declare that he could not live if he were to lose her. He did not forget to tell Ada about Ernest. He praised his wit and his good looks. Ernest never approached Christophe with a request to be introduced to Ada. But he would shut himself up in his room and sadly refuse to go out, saying that he did not know anybody. Christophe would think ill of himself on Sundays for going on his excursions with Ada while his brother stayed at home, and yet he hated not to be alone with his beloved. He accused himself of selfishness and proposed that Ernest should come with them. The introduction took place at Ada's door on the landing. Ernest and Ada bowed politely. Ada came out, followed by her inseparable Mira, who, when she saw Ernest, gave a little cry of surprise. Ernest smiled, went up to Mira and kissed her. She seemed to take it as a matter of course. "'What, you know each other?' asked Christophe in astonishment. "'Why, yes,' said Mira, laughing. "'Since when?' "'Oh, a long time.' "'And you knew?' asked Christophe, turning to Ada. "'Why did you not tell me?' "'Do you think I know all Mira's lovers?' said Ada, shrugging her shoulders. Mira took up the word and pretended in fun to be angry. Christophe could not find out any more about it. He was depressed. It seemed to him that Ernest and Mira and Ada had been lacking in honesty, although indeed he could not have brought any lie up against them but it was difficult to believe that Mira, who had no secrets from Ada, had made a mystery of this, and that Ernest and Ada were not already acquainted with each other. He watched them. But they only exchanged a few trivial words, and Ernest only paid attention to Mira all the rest of the day. Ada only spoke to Christophe, and she was much more amiable to him than usual. From that time on, Ernest always joined them. Christophe could have done without him but he dared not say so. He had no other motive for wanting to leave his brother out than his shame in having him for boon companion. He had no suspicion of him. Ernest gave him no cause for it. He seemed to be in love with Mira, and was always reserved and polite with Ada, and even affected to avoid her in a way that was a little out of place. It was as though he wished to show his brother's mistress a little of the respect he showed to himself. Ada was not surprised by it, and was none the less careful. They went on long excursions together. The two brothers would walk on in front. Ada and Mira, laughing and whispering, would follow a few yards behind. They would stop in the middle of the road and talk. Christophe and Ernest would stop and wait for them. Christophe would lose patience and go on, but soon he would turn back annoyed and irritated by hearing Ernest talking and laughing with the two young women. He would want to know what they were saying, but when they came up with him their conversation would stop. "'What are you three always plotting together?' he would ask. They would reply with some joke. They had a secret understanding, like thieves at a fair. Christophe had a sharp quarrel with Ada. They had been cross with each other all day. Strange to say, 
Ada had not assumed her air of offended dignity, to which she usually resorted in such cases so as to avenge herself by making herself as intolerably tiresome as usual. Now she simply pretended to ignore Christophe's existence, and she was in excellent spirits with the other two. It was as though in her heart she was not put out at all by the quarrel. Christophe, on the other hand, longed to make peace. He was more in love than ever. His tenderness was now mingled with a feeling of gratitude for all the good things love had brought him, and regret for the hours he had wasted in stupid argument and angry thoughts, and the unreasoning fear, the mysterious idea that their love was nearing its end. Sadly, he looked at Ada's pretty face, and she pretended not to see him while she was laughing with the others, and the sight of her woke in him so many dear memories of great love, of sincere intimacy. Her face had sometimes, it had now, so much goodness in it, a smile so pure, that Christophe asked himself why things were not better between them, why they spoiled their happiness with their whimsies, why she would insist on forgetting their bright hours, and denying and combating all that was good and honest in her, what strange satisfaction she could find in spoiling and smudging, if only in thought, the purity of their love. He was conscious of an immense need of believing in the object of his love, and he tried once more to bring back his illusions. He accused himself of injustice. He was remorseful for the thoughts that he attributed to her and of his lack of charity. He went to her and tried to talk to her. She answered him with a few curt words. She had no desire for a reconciliation with him. He insisted. He begged her to listen to him for a moment away from the others. She followed him ungraciously. When they were a few yards away so that neither Mira nor Ernest could see them, he took her hands and begged her pardon, and knelt at her feet in the dead leaves of the wood. He told her that he could not go on living so at loggerheads with her, that he found no pleasure in the walk or the fine day, that he could enjoy nothing and could not even breathe, knowing that she detested him. He needed her love. Yes, he was often unjust, violent, disagreeable. He begged her to forgive him. It was the fault of his love. He could not bear anything second-rate in her, nothing that was altogether unworthy of her and their memories of their dear past. He reminded her of it all, of their first meeting, their first days together. He said that he loved her just as much, that he would always love her, that she should not go away from him. She was everything to him. Ada listened to him, smiling, uneasy, almost softened. She looked at him with kind eyes, eyes that said that they loved each other and that she was no longer angry. They kissed, and holding each other close, they went into the leafless woods. She thought Christophe good and gentle and was grateful to him for his tender words, but she did not relinquish the naughty whims that were in her mind. But she hesitated. She did not cling to them so tightly, and yet she did not abandon what she had planned to do. Why? Who can say? Because she had vowed what she would do? Who knows? Perhaps she thought it more entertaining to deceive her lover that day, to prove to him, to prove to herself her freedom. She had no thought of losing him. She did not wish for that. 
she thought herself more sure of him than ever. They reached a clearing in the forest. There were two paths. Christophe took one. Ernest declared that the other led more quickly to the top of the hill whither they were going. Ada agreed with him. Christophe, who knew the way, having often been there, maintained that they were wrong. They did not yield. Then they agreed to try it, and each wagered that he would arrive first. Ada went with Ernest. Mira accompanied Christophe. She pretended that she was sure that he was right, and she added, as usual. Christophe had taken the game seriously, and as he never liked to lose, he walked quickly, too quickly for Mira's liking, for she was in much less of a hurry than he. "'Don't be in a hurry, my friend,' she said in her quiet, ironic voice. "'We shall get there first. He was a little sorry. "'True,' he said. "'I am going a little too fast.' There is no need. He slackened his pace. But I know them, he went on. I am sure they will run so as to be there before us. Mira burst out laughing. Oh, no, she said. Oh, no, don't you worry about that. She hung on his arm and pressed close to him. She was a little shorter than Christophe, and as they walked, she raised her soft eyes to his. She was really pretty and alluring. He hardly recognized her. The change was extraordinary. Usually her face was rather pale and puffy, but the smallest excitement, a merry thought, or the desire to please was enough to make her worn expression vanish, and her cheeks go pink, and the little wrinkles in her eyelids round and below her eyes disappear, and her eyes flash, and her whole face takes on a youth, a life, a spiritual quality that never was in Ada's. Christophe was surprised by this metamorphosis, and turned his eyes away from hers. He was a little uneasy at being alone with her. She embarrassed him, and prevented him from dreaming as he pleased. He did not listen to what she said. He did not answer her, or if he did, it was only at random. He was thinking. He wished to think only of Ada. He thought of the kindness in her eyes, her smile, her kiss, and his heart was filled with love. Mira wanted to make him admire the beauty of the trees with their little branches against the clear sky. Yes, it was all beautiful. The clouds were gone. Ada had returned to him. He had succeeded in breaking the ice that lay between them. They loved once more, near or far. They were one. He sighed with relief. How light the air was. Ada had come back to him. Everything brought her to mind. It was a little damp. Would she not be cold? The lovely trees were powdered with hoar-frost. What a pity she should not see them! But he remembered the wager and hurried on. He was concerned only with not losing the way. He shouted joyfully as they reached the goal. We are first! He waved his hat gleefully. Mira watched him and smiled. The place where they stood was a high, steep rock in the middle of the woods, from this flat summit, with its fringe of nut-trees and little stunted oaks, they could see, over the wooded slopes, the tops of the pines bathed in a purple mist, and the long ribbon of the Rhine in the blue valley. Not a bird called, not a voice, not a breath of air. A still, calm winter's day, its chilliness faintly warmed by the pale beams of a misty sun. Now and then in the distance there came the sharp whistle of a train in the valley. 
Christophe stood at the edge of the rock and looked down at the countryside. Miro watched Christophe. He turned to her amiably. "'Well, the lazy things! I told them so. Well, we must wait for them.' He lay stretched out in the sun on the cracked earth. "'Yes, let us wait,' said Mira, taking off her hat. In her voice there was something so quizzical that he raised his head and looked at her. "'What is it?' she asked quietly. "'What did you say?' "'I said, let us wait. It was no use making me run so fast.' True. They waited, lying on the rough ground. Mira hummed a tune. Christophe took it up for a few phrases. But he stopped every now and then to listen. I think I can hear them. Mira went on singing. Do stop for a moment. Mira stopped. No, it is nothing. She went on with her song. Christophe could not stay still. Perhaps they have lost their way. Lost? They could not. Ernest knows all the paths. A fantastic idea passed through Christophe's mind. Perhaps they arrived first and went away before we came. Mira was lying on her back and looking at the sun. She was seized with a wild burst of laughter in the middle of her song, and all but choked. Christophe insisted. He wanted to go down to the station, saying that their friends would be there already. Mira at last made up her mind to move. You would be certain to lose them. There was never any talk about the station. We were to meet here. He sat down by her side. She was amused by his eagerness. He was conscious of the irony in her gaze as she looked at him. He began to be seriously troubled, to be anxious about them. He did not suspect them. He got up once more. He spoke of going down into the woods again and looking for them, calling to them. Mira gave a little chuckle. She took from her pocket a needle, scissors, and thread, and she calmly undid and sewed in again the feathers in her hat. She seemed to have established herself for the day. "'No, no, silly,' she said. "'If they wanted to come, do you think they would not come of their own accord?' There was a catch at his heart. He turned towards her. She did not look at him. She was busy with her work. He went up to her. "'Mira,' he said. "'Eh?' she replied without stopping. He knelt now to look more nearly at her. "'Mira!' he repeated. "'Well?' she asked, raising her eyes from her work and looking at him with a smile. "'What is it?' She had a mocking expression as she saw his downcast face. "'Mira!' he asked, choking. "'Tell me what you think!' She shrugged her shoulders, smiled, and went on working. He caught her hands and took away the hat at which she was sewing. "'Leave off! Leave off! And tell me!' She looked squarely at him and waited. She saw that Christophe's lips were trembling. "'You think,' he said in a low voice, "'that Ernest and Ada?' She smiled. "'Oh, well,' he started back angrily. "'No! No! It is impossible! You don't think that! No! No!' She put her hands on his shoulders and rocked with laughter. "'How dense you are!' "'How dense, my dear!' He shook her violently. "'Don't laugh. Why do you laugh? You would not laugh if it were true. You love Ernest.' She went on laughing and drew him to her and kissed him. In spite of himself he returned her kiss, but when he felt her lips on his, her lips, still warm with his brother's kisses, he flung her away from him and held her face away from his own. He asked, "'You knew it? It was arranged between you?' 
she said, Yes, and laughed. Christophe did not cry out. He made no movement of anger. He opened his mouth as though he could not breathe. He closed his eyes and clutched at his breast with his hands. His heart was bursting. Then he lay down on the ground with his face buried in his hands, and he was shaken by a crisis of disgust and despair like a child. Mira, who was not very soft-hearted, was sorry for him. Involuntarily she was filled with motherly compassion, and leaned over him, and spoke affectionately to him, and tried to make him sniff at her smelling-bottle. But he thrust her away in horror, and got up so sharply that she was afraid. He had neither strength nor desire for revenge. He looked at her with his face twisted with grief. "'You drab!' he said in despair. "'You do not know the harm you have done!' She tried to hold him back. He fled through the woods, spitting out his disgust with such ignominy, with such muddy hearts, with such incestuous sharing as that to which they had tried to bring him. He wept, he trembled, he sobbed with disgust. He was filled with horror, of them all, of himself, of his body and soul. A storm of contempt broke loose in him. It had long been brewing. Sooner or later there had to come the reaction against the base thoughts, the degrading compromises, the stale and pestilential atmosphere in which he had been living for months. But the need of loving, of deceiving himself about the woman he loved, had postponed the crisis as long as possible. Suddenly it burst upon him, and it was better so. There was a great gust of wind of a biting purity, an icy breeze which swept away the miasma. Disgust in one swoop had killed his love for Ada. If Ada thought more firmly to establish her domination over Christophe by such an act, that proved once more her gross inappreciation of her lover. Jealousy which binds souls that are besmirched could only revolt a nature like Christophe's, young, proud, and pure. But what he could not forgive, what he never would forgive, was that the betrayal was not the outcome of passion in Ada, hardly even of one of those absurd and degrading, though often irresistible, caprices to which the reason of a woman is sometimes hard put to it not to surrender. No, he understood now. It was in her a secret desire to degrade him, to humiliate him, to punish him for his moral resistance, for his inimical faith, to lower him to the common level, to bring him to her feet, to prove to herself her own power for evil. And he asked himself with horror, What is this impulse towards dirtiness which is in the majority of human beings? this desire to besmirch the purity of themselves and others, these swinish souls who take a delight in rolling in filth and are happy when not one inch of their skins is left clean. Ada waited two days for Christophe to return to her. Then she began to be anxious and sent him a tender note in which she made no allusion to what had happened. Christophe did not even reply. He hated Ada so profoundly that no words could express his hatred. He had cut her out of his life. She no longer existed for him. End of section 35